I'm like everybody else uh, in the church. There are times I get tickled about things. Sometimes I look at you and I see people smiling during service, and I'm wondering, I'm like, I wonder what happened that's making, what, what did I say a lot of times is what I think. What have I said that's making them laugh uh, or what things are going on? I have to admit, I was chuckling during the first uh, carol we did in the second set there, Go Tell on the Mountain, because I have a, a CD of Simon and Garfunkel singing that song, you know, Paul Simon Garfunkel. And I was trying to imagine uh, Cecil and Aaron as Paul Simon and Garfunkel up here, and who would be, uh, who would be who? And it brought a whole new dimension to the to the singing uh, today. Uh, I'll let you guess who I decided which which would be which. Love Christmas carols, and I agree with many teachers and theologians and preachers and people that uh, say that Christmas carols really are uh, in in today's world probably the most in-depth songs that people sing and sing enough of them during one season that you actually can learn a lot about the story of the Bible that it's trying to communicate and really good theology. And if you, if you pay attention to Christmas carols and you know the Christmas story, uh, it truly is some of the best, uh, at least in one sense, some of the best writing that has ever been done to communicate through music, uh, a message from God, the Word of God. And so there were so many things in the Christmas carols today that uh, as you listen, as we go through this message this morning, so many things that have already been said through the songs that we were, that we were singing. Now, uh, this morning, we're continuing our series on the Christmas secret, and it's an open secret. It is a secret that we are supposed to tell, the story of Jesus' coming. And that is one of the responsibilities, one of the callings that we have as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, is to go and tell others. And I was thinking uh, yesterday, when you want to tell someone about yourself in today's world, how do you do that? If you want to communicate to others about yourself in today's world, how do you go about doing that? Well, if you're applying for a job or you want a scholarship or uh, there's certain experiences maybe you want to be a part of, you have to get together what we call a resume. And a resume is something that tells other people about you. And when you put a resume together, it, it tells a little bit about your life experience, uh, your work experience. It lets people know things that you have accomplished, things that you have been through, places and ways that you have invested your time and your energy, right? That's what a resume, a resume does. That's what it does. Now, resumes uh, are only partially true, right? Because there are things in our resume that we would not put on it. Because we don't want a prospective boss to know that about us. We don't want to reveal that about uh, ourselves because we know if we do that, they may think there's no way uh, I am going uh, to hire this person. You know, I, I'm not going to do that. So a resume does tell about us, but it's only uh, partially true. It's true, but it's not really true. That's one way. Uh, people talk about social media, and this is true. Social media, we present what we want to present about ourselves. And there are things that we don't share. And by the way, there are things that I don't think you should share uh, on there. So I'm not telling you to all of a sudden go to Facebook and pour out 
everything about you because oftentimes that that implicates other people in ways that are not fair to them but on facebook we only tell what we want to tell we put up the pictures we want people to see right i mean do you know what my wife would do to me if um, we went to gatlinburg yesterday or we went friday night and we had to get up really early on saturday and you know what my wife would have done if i would have taken a picture as soon as she got out of bed and put it on facebook you know what she would do to me very angry because we only communicate the story we want to communicate on social media in the ancient world people would communicate what they thought you need to know in different ways and one way that was really important not just to israel but in the ancient world period if you really wanted to know somebody you needed to know their genealogy You needed to know who their family was. Because if you knew who somebody's family was, and you knew their story, you could get insight into what kind of values, morals, teachings that the family had passed on to the person that you were trying to get to know. Now, there's great good in that. There's also a burden with that, because what if you're different than your family? What if their legacy, their story is not the way you're living your life and not how you are, are, are behaving? So you can see that a family genealogy uh, is both good and it would help people know things about you. It would communicate that. Uh, but, but what if you're different than, than your family genealogy? What if there are some people in your genealogy that you don't want people to know about? Oh, I want you to know about Grandma. She was a great Christian. She was this, 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 and this. But I don't want you to know about my brother or my sister or cousin so-and-so over here. I don't want them in my genealogy because what that might communicate to you about our family is something I don't want you to know. So we use resumes. We use social media. We have ways that we communicate to others about ourselves. But in the ancient world, genealogies were a way that it would be communicated information about you. That is why in the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew starts the story of Jesus, he doesn't start with Herod, he doesn't start with angels, he doesn't start with the journey to Bethlehem uh, by Mary and Joseph. Matthew begins the story of good news to the world with a genealogy. Now this, of course, is the earthly resume of Jesus. There's a divine resume that's different than anybody else because he's the only son of God that there's ever been. But the earthly resume of the son of man is also unique among ancient genealogies for some things that are in it. One of the things that's different about Jesus's genealogy than most other ancient genealogies that we can see from his area and his time, is it includes a number of women. Not just one, there's several women listed in Matthew's genealogy. Next week we're going to look at some of the fathers that are in the genealogy of Matthew and what that tells us about the Christmas secret that we are to proclaim. But this week we're going to look at the mothers of Jesus the mother, the grandmothers, the mothers of Jesus in his genealogy that will prepare and assist us in proclaiming the tidings of joy.
So Matthew chapter 1, let's read some verses together. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew starts his story of Jesus this way. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 3, and Judas begot Perez and Zara of Tamar, and Perez begot Esram, and Esram begot Aram. And Judas begat Perez and Zara of Tamar. Verse 5, and Solomon begot Boaz of, of Rechab, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. So Tamar and Ruth, and Ruth who goes back to Rechab or Rahab, goes back to Rahab. All right, verse 6, And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon. But we don't just need to know about Solomon. Who is Solomon? Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias, of Uriah. So I didn't want to just know about Solomon. It's important that you know that Solomon is the son of Bathsheba. Verse 16, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the Babylonian captivity, until the great carrying away into Babylon, are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Christmas is wonderful Because we talk about the birth of our King, our Lord, our Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. And most of us, maybe all of us in this room, know the broad outline of the Christmas story. But by looking at Matthew's genealogy, we can go actually a little deeper into the story than we typically do. And maybe deeper than you've ever gone. And that is my prayer this morning. That the Holy Spirit will teach you, that will illuminate, that will allow you to perceive and see some things about the coming of Jesus that you've not seen before or maybe you have seen and you have forgotten. So I want to share some lessons that we learn from this genealogy. All right, And I want to jump right into it. Lesson number one. You say, I try to read the Bible and I get to genealogies and I throw my hands up and say, this is incredibly boring and I cannot do this and why did he put this here? Well, lesson number one that we learn from this genealogy is that we are called to share Christmas news, not Christmas advice. We are called to share Christmas news, not Christmas advice. Did you notice how the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew did not begin? Matthew does not start his story of Jesus by saying, once upon a time. Once upon a time is a way that fairy tales and Disney movies and other things communicate to you that this is not true, but I'm going to tell you a story to communicate morals or advice to you, but this isn't really a true story, but I want to help you, so I'm going to make a story up. Matthew does not begin his story with once upon a time. There's a place for once upon a time stories. One of my favorite movies from my childhood was Star Wars. used to love watching Star Wars. Didn't have cable television. Only had five or six channels until I got in seventh grade. And so, so the VHS 
that ancient of ancient technologies, the VCR, was so important as a child. Because that meant that if there was something good on TV, that we could record it, and I could watch it a hundred times. And I remember, as we recorded the Star Wars movies when they were on, on TV, and we would record that, and that allowed me to watch it over and over and over again. But How does Star Wars start? A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. That's George Lucas's way of saying, once upon a time, let me tell you a story. It's not true, but I'm going to communicate some morals and some advice to you through this story. Matthew does not start with once upon a time. He starts with a family tree, a family tree that has ancient roots that flow back deep into the story of the Jewish people and back into the deepest roots of humanity itself. Why does Matthew start his story of Jesus, the Christmas story, this way? Because Matthew wants to make sure that you know this is not a once upon a time. This is not a fable of Aesop. This is about a real person, Jesus, with a real family. Matthew wants you to know this is not once upon a time a fairy tale. Matthew wants, to know, wants you to know that he is a reporter of true events. He is a reporter of news. And his calling and his job is to give this news to you. Now, regardless of how you feel about political stuff, there's a lot of discussion about fake news. And I just want to say this today. What Matthew has to tell us is not fake news. It is the greatest news that's ever been told. And so this beginning of a genealogy is, in is important. Because it lets you know this is not a fairy tale. And this is not, there are morals, there are, there are advice. But this is not founded upon a fairy tale to give you morals or advice. This is news that I am led by the Holy Spirit to share with you. So he's not primarily going to give advice in his gospel, although there's advice to be had. He's not primarily giving you morals, although there's definitely a, 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 a morality that comes through in the way of Jesus. What Matthew is doing is heralding, is sharing to you the news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, why does this matter? Well, advice is given so that you will do something. Advice about somebody giving you advice so that you will do something. And again, there is that in the Bible. But the story of Jesus does not begin with advice. Because the story of Jesus does not begin with something that you need to do. The story of Jesus is about what he has already done. Advice is focused on you. News is focused on somebody else. And the news of the Christmas story is focused upon Jesus and about his coming into this world and how he has acted in history. Once you respond to that, then there will be advice and morality and a way in which Jesus calls you to walk and live and to guide you. Preachers and theologians have put it this way, and this is one of my favorite images to understand what happens at Christmas, right? This is kind of a C.S. Lewis type thing if you like him, but this type of analogy goes way further back than C.S. Lewis. Let's say, let's make it here for Cookville, all right? Let's, let's bring it here to Cookville. 
let's say that an enemy is going to attack Cookville. That our nation has been invaded and we are going to be attacked. Now, if we're going to be attacked, we've got to prepare ourselves for it and we need advice. We need military advisors that will come and tell us, here's how you set your defenses up, right? Now, I, I love you, Matt. I, I love you, Austin. I called you Matthew. I am so sorry. Oh, that's crushing. Jesus still loves you, Austin. I love Austin and Matthew. But if Cookville is being attacked, I really... Now, Matthew plays a lot of video games, and so does Austin. So they might be able to give us some advice on how to defend our city. But I really don't want to hear from Matthew and Austin about how we should defend Cookville. In fact, if you want to put our hope in Matthew and Austin, raise your hand. Right. See, we don't want to know that, right? We don't, we, and guess what? They don't want my advice either how to defend this town. We don't want that. We need a general to show up or an advisor, a military person to come up, to show up and say, this is how you put your defenses up. This is where you place your artillery. This is where you need to put your troops. These are where the supply lines need to be. If we're about to be attacked and we've got to get ready, we need somebody to come and give us advice. However, let's say that we are preparing for the attack and an army is sent to us. Let's just say an imaginary army. Uh, let's say an imaginary army from Florida arrives. And as the, the enemy is coming to attack us, and defeat us, this, 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 this army from Florida shows up. And before the enemy gets here, the army from Florida vanquishes them, defeats them, destroys this invading army and this invading general, this invading ruler, and this army from Florida comes, and they destroy that army before they get here. You know what happens when that happens? You don't need any more advice. What you need is not advice. What you need is a messenger to come and tell you about the victory that has already been won. This world is striving to give itself advice about what it needs to do to win and what it needs to do to have victory and what it needs to do to live life to the fullest. And what Matthew tells us is, no, 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 no. I'm not going to give you a fable. I'm not going to give you a morality play. I'm going to report the news to you that another general has come, that he has left the throne of heaven, and the angels have announced that he has come. And what I'm going to tell you in my gospel is this story of one who has already defeated the enemy in your life. Who's already destroyed the stranglehold of sin. And so what we need is not another Aesop's fable, not another Star Wars, not another Disney movie. What we need is the great good news that Matthew is going to share. By the way, that's what God did at Christmas. He sent messengers. That's what an angel is. By the way, when you sing these hymns, I was doing this this morning, it doesn't work every time. But most of the time, these Christmas carols, when you're singing about angels, if you will change that to messengers in your mind, if you can do both things at, at once, if you'll do that, it's really intriguing to do that. And to, and to, in your mind, sing it that way. Because it reminds you, what are these angels all about? That's what God sent. He sent angels. He sent messengers to bring the news. The Greek word angelos literally means messenger. 
When those heavenly messengers arrived, they did not say, here is what you must do to defeat sin, evil, and the wicked one. Now, understand, there are things that they do tell people to go do. But the basis for their action is not about them. It's about what God has already done and what God is doing. And they need to get in on that and to be a part of what God's doing. Here's what you must now do. But what drives the message is not you. It is not Mary. It is not Joseph. It is not John the Baptist and his family. What drives all of this is what God has done and what he is doing in Jesus. So, the heavenly messengers do not arrive and say, here is what you must do to defeat sin, evil, and the wicked one. No, when the divine messengers, when the angels arrive, they come and say, I bring you glad tidings of joy. I bring you good news. Good news of the King, the Christ, the Messiah, who has come to seek and to save and to set the world right. These Christmas angels came to declare the news of what God was doing the first Christmas. Other religions of the world give advice. They give you advice about how you are to please the many gods of this world. Do this, this, and this, you will please the gods. Do this, this, and this, and you will enter into enlightenment. Do this, this, and this, and you will escape the process of reincarnation. That's what other religions say. We're going to give you advice. Now go do this, please the gods. Do this, you'll receive enlightenment. Do this, you'll escape the, the, the pattern of reincarnation. That's not what's happening in the story of Jesus. The secret of Jesus that is proclaimed loudly through the hymns, if you are listening, and is proclaimed within Matthew's genealogy to us, the secret of Christmas is the secret of Jesus. And that is, as we already sang about this morning, you can't do anything to come up to where Jesus is, so He has come down to you. And that's not advice, that is good news that He has come. If you are glad for the secret of Christmas, say Amen. Now, once you believe that good news, once you embrace that good news, there is a way to walk, there are things to be done, but the firm ground of salvation is not in our doing, but in what Jesus did. So He deserves, and He gets all the glory and all the honor. So lesson number one that you can learn from a genealogy is that we share Christmas news, not Christmas advice. But what about more particularly the women that are mentioned in this genealogy? What do they tell us? What do they teach us? Second thing you can learn from this genealogy is that what God values is frequently not what the world, and I mean that in the way it's used in the Bible, the world as a system that is corrupted in opposition, that's under the way the Bible describes it, the power of sin, and so then people act out um, this, this flaw, but it's deeper than a flaw that is within the whole system. When I say the world here, I mean God's values are different than the world's values because God is not corrupted, He's not wrong, He's not under the power of this sin and what it is doing, right? I mean, it, it, it's not under that. 
So what this genealogy shows us is that God's values aren't the world's values. You see, the world's values are, I give you my resume and I let you see what I want you to see, but I don't put my sins and faults on my resume because I need to impress you. God is not interested in impressing you. God does not have to impress you. What God is interested in is telling you the truth so that you may know His love, so that you may be forgiven of sin, so that you may live with Him. So in this resume of Jesus, Matthew does the opposite of what his culture would have said to do. First of all, he lists five women in the resume. And that's not normal in ancient genealogies that are meant to impress people. You don't put the women there. On top of that, three of the five women listed in the genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, these are Gentile women. And when Matthew is writing this gospel, it's only gotten more intense since Jesus was put on the cross. It's only gotten more intense in Israel that there's this big movement within the Jews to kick the Gentiles out to get rid of the Romans. And all the other Gentiles are there because they are corrupting and destroying everything. And so if Matthew wants to impress his Jewish readers and wants to make a good impression upon them, he, you do not list three women that are Gentiles women or were Gentile women until they entered into the family. When Matthew proclaims the good news, they're trying to get the Gentiles out of Israel. And here he is beginning his story with the three Gentile women front and center. And these aren't any Gentile women. Of those three, two are Canaanites and one was a Moabite. Nations that were explicitly expressed as unclean. Meaning they could not worship in synagogues. They could not enter in to the inner parts of the temple. Couldn't enter the temple at all, some of them. So they're not just Gentile women. They are unclean, expressly stated unclean Gentile women. And some of them have the most interesting morals in their stories that you'll ever read. There is Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her, which the Bible says is incest. Incest is a part of Jesus' genealogy. Rahab, she was a prostitute before she entered into the people of God. Of course, here is the thing. Those women are bad, but are they really any worse than the best of the men listed in the genealogy? I mean, we might take David. We might say that David is the greatest of all the men listed in the genealogy of Jesus. That is why it is so important in reporting the news to us and telling us the truth. That Matthew intentionally, under the power of the Holy Spirit, says what he says in verse 6. Go back and look at verse 6. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon. Of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Uriah's wife. Oh yeah. David, who is the best of the best 
was a murderer. You see, Uriah was not any man. When David, in his, in his younger days, was on the run from King Saul, King Saul wanted to kill him and hunted him throughout the land. When David was on the run, he gathered to him a mighty group of heroes, a group of mighty men who did, who did amazing things with David and were men of renown within Israel. And as the kingdom begins to, to, to shatter under Saul's rule, that people begin to look to David and they look to these mighty men that he has gathered around him and, 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 and they look to them as a light. And Uriah is among that number. In Uriah, there's a, there's a story once where uh, Uriah actually risked his life for David. David takes a man that when, when Saul was trying to kill him, when it was a death sentence upon your life to stand with David, Uriah was there. Through thick and thin, he was with him. And yet, while Uriah is off fighting the king's wars, David sees his friend's wife and desires her. And this sin, this desire within his heart grows, and it grows, and David, who is maybe the best of the best in the genealogy of Jesus, he has his friend murdered so that he can take his wife and hide the fact that he's already gotten her pregnant. Sinners, outsiders, embarrassing story after embarrassing story, that is what is front and center the resume of Jesus that Matthew starts his good news with. You see, these begats are not something to be skipped over. They are the Word of God. Christmas is not news. It is news. It's not advice. And Christmas is not about the world's values. It's about God's values. It's about God's desire to bring in the outsider, to bring in the sinner, to bring in the most corrupt of corrupt so that they may know the power of God and so that they, so that you might be forgiven of your sin. And so Matthew says, let me give you the resume of Jesus so that you will understand what God is doing. If Christmas is news and not advice, and Matthew's starting of the Christmas story is trying to make it clear to us that God's values aren't ours, then there is a third thing we need to know. And Brother Cecil has already preached this already through some words he has said. The third thing that this genealogy is to teach us is that God is patient and God is perfect. He is both patient and perfect. Would you say that after me? Would you say patient and perfect? The begats are to let you know that God is patient with your sin. But He is also perfect and it must be dealt with. Today's genealogy teaches us that the coming of the Savior took ages. It took generations back to David, back to Abraham, back to Adam and the first mother of us all, Eve. God had promised in Genesis 3.15 to the first father and the first mother that, that Satan, that the enemy would be crushed. 
But it's not until Mary, thousands of years later, that the angel messenger comes. And it's so true. You cannot understand God using your calendar or your timetable. If you do that, you will never accept what God wants for you. You will never be at peace with God if you constantly try to put Him on your timetable, on your calendar, how you desire things to go. That is not what God does. God never has and God never will submit to our timetable and to our calendar. Thousands of years after He promised this. The angel messenger comes. And you might think that God is ignoring your prayers. He is not. God is no more ignoring the prayers of His people than He ignored the prayers of those from the time of Adam and Eve until the coming of the Messiah. Joseph in Egypt was years in captivity praying to God. Abraham and Sarah spent years praying for a child. Jesus spent the majority of His life not doing the ministry that is recorded. We don't know. But 30 years of it, we know that much. The little bit we do know is really important. But it's really three and a half years where it all explodes and is recorded. God is patient. God is patient. When you read those begats and you see all the sin that is represented by all those names, it brings us hope. Because if God was patient with them, then God will be patient with your child and with your grandchild and with your relatives and with your co-workers. God is a God of patience and God will be patient with you. If you are glad He is patient, say amen. But He is also perfect. And this perfection means that there comes a point where the patient reaches a fullness in time. Four, now listen to this. Actually, read this again. Because this to me is something that I forget. I, I, I've known this, but I forget this. And I normally don't think about it at Christmas. And this is so important. Go back to how, Je- how, how Matthew ends Jesus' genealogy. Look at verse 17, all right? Look at what he, look at what he says. Because it's one of those things you could skip over. And if you do, you're missing some really important truth that God wants you to know. Verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David unto the carrying away unto Babylon are 14 more. From the carrying away unto Babylon unto Christ are 14 more. So that's six sevens, right? So three fourteens, right? Some of you that have been doing common core math, you've got to stick with me, all right? Okay, my son brings his math homework home. I ceased to understand it when Ethan was in second grade, what they wanted. But I get this. I understand this. That's three sets of 14s. That means that's six sets of seven generations until Jesus. Three 14s, which makes six sevens until the coming of Jesus. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to Jesus. There are six sevens of generations until Jesus. That means that Jesus starts the seventh. He is... Uh, the, 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 the beginning of the seventh, the seventh of these generations. Seven is symbolic in Scripture. Let me teach you something, all right? And I mean this with all, you know, everything within me. If you see somebody that writes a book 
and they take your English Bible and they start telling you, I have decoded the secrets of the Bible. If you go to the book of Matthew and you go to the fourth word, the third letter, and then you go to the fifth verse and go to the sixth letter, and please don't do that because understand, to begin with, the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek, and they don't have the same number of, of, of letters in their words. They also don't have verses that was added later to help us understand to, so we could quickly turn to places and get there. So when somebody starts telling you, I've decoded secrets in the Bible and they have this numerology, it's about taking your English Bible and all these weird patterns and stuff, do not listen to that because once the Bible is not in English anymore, that doesn't work with anybody else and anybody else's language that the Bible is in. That is false. But numbers do matter in the Bible. And these six sevens are the same in everybody's Bible, no matter what language it is translated in. And the number seven is always symbolic in Scripture because seven is the number of completion, of perfection. God completed the work of creation and rested on what day? Seventh day. In the law of Moses, farmers were to let the land replenish during the seventh year and not cultivate it. You worked, you worked a plot of land for six years. On the seventh year, you worked somewhere else. You didn't work that plot of land because you wanted its nutrients and its stuff to, to replenish. God rested the seventh day. Law of Moses, farmers were to rest the land on the seventh year. The 49th year, so seven periods of seven, seven times seven is 49. After seven Seven years times seven made 49 years. That was the year of Jubilee in ancient Israel. What does all of this point to? And why is it significant in the beginning of Matthew's story, of the Christmas story, that Jesus begins the seventh generation? Why is this so important? Because Matthew wants you to know that the story the news that he is about to report to you in his gospel, the news is this. Perfect rest, perfect renewal, perfect forgiveness, perfect jubilee could be found in none of the fathers and mothers of Jesus that came before. But perfect rest, perfect renewal, perfect forgiveness, perfect jubilee has come with the day of the Lord. Perfection is not found in your resume. Perfection is not found in your family. Perfection, hope, rest, celebration, forgiveness from the darkest and most vile of sin is found in Jesus. So church, let us get busy proclaiming the secret of Christmas that the perfect King has come and let us too be messengers sent by God to proclaim that Christ, the Savior, is born. Not only born, but He has bled and He has died and He has risen again. And if your sin is incest, if your sin is the uncleanness of yourself, and your tribe, and your people, and your friends, if that is your story, well, that's the story of Israel too. And that's the kind of people that Jesus has come to save. If you are glad for Christmas, say amen.
Cecil, help us celebrate Christmas. Come, bring a, bring, bring a song. And let's sing a song of jubilee. Let's sing a song of praise to the perfect Lord whose good news we get to proclaim. As they come, listen, today, I, I want to do this. I know this has been a, a teaching message today. They're all teaching messages, but, but this one is really um, an interesting one, I think. But if you are a sinner, I believe and pray the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart, especially if you're a sinner who has never embraced Jesus, who has never embraced the good news of what He has done. He is perfect, and He is patient. And He has patiently been watching you and observing you. And He knows everything about you. And He says, I've come today to you. To you. If you need to be saved this morning, listen. You come. Let's stand together. Father God, I ask right now. Lord, use this teaching. Use this word. Use your scriptures to help us love you more. To help us be more effective this Christmas using this time to tell others about your son Jesus Jesus you are perfect Father God your son is perfect and we your imperfect people we give this Lord's day we give this service we give these carols these praises this message Lord we give it to you through your perfect son Jesus Lord I pray if there's one struggling that today they would today they would pray that they would seek not advice from any other man or woman but they would embrace the message, the news that you have for them of your son Jesus Father God use this time to help us glorify you I ask this in Jesus name Amen